Hello! Welcome to Moniker, where we explore the histories and mysteries of names. My name is Megan, and on this podcast, we will nerd out on history, linguistics, etymology, all that juicy stuff that goes with how and why people, places, and things get their names. In fact, I'm going to teach you a new word, onomastics. Onomastics is the multidisciplinary study of names and naming practices. Today, we're going to take a not-so-boring look at a very boring name, Smith. It's hard to argue that Smith is an incredibly basic B name. It's Wonder Bread. It's Miracle Whip. It's Smith. It's the kind of name that characters in sitcoms name their fake boyfriends. But does the data support the stereotype that this is a super common and basic name? Let's find out. According to the 2010 census, because we don't have the 2020 census, because thanks pandemic, Smith is the most popular surname in America, with about two and a half million people having the name. Now that might not sound like much, but think about it, that's more than the population of New Mexico. Surprisingly, given its vanilla implications, Smith also crosses racial boundaries. According to that same article in the census, about 70% of the Smiths in 2010 were white, with no Hispanic heritage, no surprise there. About 23% were African American, with no Hispanic heritage, and about 2% of the people were of Hispanic heritage. The remaining fractions of percentage points were found mostly among Native Americans, but also a small number of Asian Pacific Islander citizens. So at least a quarter of American Smiths are not the lily-white Anglos you might imagine. By the way, if you want to nerd out a bit, go to the Census Bureau's website. There is so much juicy information, and it's really cool. There's graphs, all kinds of stuff. If you're a data nerd, just go over there, census.gov. It's super. The data show that Smith is an extremely common name in Canada and the UK and New Zealand and Australia, essentially anywhere that giant kraken that was the British Empire puckered its suction cups. Puckered. Yeah. You're welcome for the image, by the way. But why is Smith so common in America specifically? Let's start the investigation with a little hypothesis. Hear ye, hear ye. We shall now read the hypothesis. Thank you, Squire. Alright, so here's the part of the show where I share my hypothesis about our naming question before we dig into the information. This is what I think just kind of coming in cold. My hypothesis is that Smith is common in America because it's easy to spell and people coming through Ellis Island had their names changed to it or the other names that were easy to spell and sounded very basic and non-threatening and to a xenophobic public, very, again, non-threatening. There's also probably something about the fact that uh, everybody in America was of either British descent or wanted to seem like they were of British descent, because that's just what made it easier to move through the world at that time. And, I mean, if we're going to talk about names that sound British, Smith is about as British as a scone riding a red double-decker bus on his way to tea with the Queen. All right, now that we've got our hypothesis in the can, let's turn to our research and see what we can discover.
Just a disclaimer, I'm not asserting that what I found in my research is the incontrovertible truth. I'm only a very amateur historian. So think of what we go through today as just what I found using the resources at my disposal. You'll be able to see all my sources in the show notes, and if you have any good faith corrections or questions, I am totally open, and I'll have my email address at the end of the show. All right, so the first, Smiths. The term Smith originated in the British Isles. It's thought to come from the Anglo-Saxon word smiten, which meant to smite or hammer. The first people with the professional title of Smith were craftsmen within Anglo-Saxon villages. As was the case with other professions at the time, the person's occupation of smith became inseparable from their identity. So, for instance, here's Phil, the smith. This convention is what was known as an occupational by-name, and it was really, really common before the use of hereditary surnames. The first written mention of Smith that we know of when referring to a person has been traced to Durham, Northumbria in 975 AD. Now, Northumbria spanned from the bottom of Scotland to just south of York. So essentially, if you just took a big chunk out of the middle of the island of Britannia, that is Northumbria. The document with the word is a statement from a wealthy woman named Geetfleda, in which she is freeing a man named Eckiard Smith from slavery. The Anglo-Saxons were in the grips of a famine around this time, and it was a common practice for people to sell themselves into slavery in order to pay off debts or just because they had no other options for survival. And this is something that's actually really common in the ancient world, particularly within and immediately following the Roman Empire. Gietfleda denounces the ungodliness of slavery and grants freedom to Eckyard Smith and his family. Now, Smith, in this usage, seems to refer to Eckyard's profession, so it would be considered still a professional by-name, even though it's something that is sort of referred to as his surname within the document. And it's really interesting if you think about it, because this woman, Geet Fleda, she's probably a fairly recent Christian because of just this period in history. And so it's really interesting because we see the origin point of this common name, but we also see the first conversions of the Anglo-Saxon people by the probably the Roman church. So were all the Smiths as downtrodden as poor Eckyard? To get a better understanding of Northumbria and Anglo-Saxon society at this time, we can turn to the words of Anglo-Saxon King Alfred. King Alfred referred to three classes of men, the praying men, the fighting men, and the working men. He believed that having these three distinct groups was essential for a successful society. In a commentary on a philosophy work he was translating, Alfred writes, quote, In the case of the king, The resources and tools with which to rule are that he have his land fully manned. He must have praying men, fighting men, and working men. You know also that without these tools, no king may make his ability known. Another aspect of his resource is that he must have the means of support for his tools, the three classes of men. These, then, are the means of support, land to live on, gifts, weapons, food, ale, clothing, and whatever else is necessary for each of the three classes of men. End quote. It's pretty easy to see that Smith would be part of the working class of men that King Alfred is describing. And if you look at the three classes of men as described by King Alfred, 
the fighting men, the praying men, and the working men, which group do you think is most likely to produce the most children? The warriors, or the fighting men, were more likely to be killed in wars, because, you know, it's right there in the name. And since this is the pre-Reformation, the praying men are most likely, at least in theory, celibate, and kind of living a monastic lifestyle. So they're not terribly likely to have kids either. The group that is most likely to have the most children, even if they end up dying young, which they probably would, if they live long enough to survive to be working men, chances are they have lived long enough to sire children. And because they're not, you know, pretending to be celibate or fighting in a war, they're more likely to have more children. And, you know, this is something that could have aided in Smith's proliferation. In William Arthur's 1857 work, An Etymological Dictionary of Family and Christian Names, the author gives us more glimpses into the social significance of a smith in a Northumbrian village pre-Norman conquest. Arthur writes, quote, Among the Highland clans, the smith ranked third in dignity to the chief from his skill in fabricating military weapons and his dexterity in teaching the use of them, end quote. Arthur goes on to say that, apart from being a bard or a scholar, Smith was the only profession that could be studied by the common people without the approval of their lords. And so becoming a smith was a respectable enterprise, and it had very few barriers to entry. But what exactly did that enterprise entail? What did a smith do at this time? When we think of a smith, we usually think of a blacksmith. We think of a muscular man hammering horseshoes in a dingy kind of shack kind of situation. But according to Arthur, a smith was, quote, originally applied to artificers of wood as well as metal, in fact, to all mechanical workmen, which accounts for the great frequency of the name, end quote. So the term didn't just describe one profession. It applied to all craftsmen. If you consider that each village would have, like, one guy for each job, a tailor, butcher, etc., but smith is used as a suffix for several village professions, you can see how it would become so prolific. Your village would have, like, one butcher, but several smith professions, coopersmith, blacksmith, sixthsmith. Some of these remain in their original form, with the materials specified, like coopersmith, silversmith, we, see, we still see those today, but... Many were simplified over generations to just Smith, especially once occupational names were linked with family lineage as opposed to just one's actual job. I imagine this would be kind of like if our last names reflected what our professions were today, and everybody who used a computer had computer somewhere in their name, you know, like like John, computer programmer, Jim, computer engineer, you know, something like that. Eventually, with the simplification, we would just have hundreds of people named John Computer. It's worth noting that other occupational bynames, such as Cooper and Weaver, don't appear in written records until around the 1300s. So this gave Smith a couple century head start in terms of proliferating into the population. When the Normans invaded present-day England in 1066, the land was divided amongst a ruling class of barons who established complex systems of farming tenantship. Prior to this, the Anglo-Saxons lived in tribalistic kingdoms that were fiercely loyal to their warrior kings. This isn't to say that the Anglo-Saxons' culture wasn't sophisticated prior to the Normans. In fact, much of what is now known as the common law of Britain, like with the jurisdiction of the shires and things like that, a lot of those things survived despite the occupation. 
Interestingly, the Anglo-Saxon warrior kings and lords were not dynastic in nature. When they died, their tribal significance died with them. Someone might be known as Egbert, son of Ethelred, but that didn't necessarily mean that there was a formal succession of power linked with a family name. Any names that were linked with family lineage would only last a generation or two. It's thought that the Normans imposed the convention of surnames on the Anglo-Saxons in order to keep tabs on them. The limited proto-surnames used by the Anglo-Saxons were mostly drawn from geographical location, professional bynames like Smith, family ties, or physical descriptors. So, the Anglo-Saxons had ways of identifying themselves before the Normans, but the Normans essentially made it official. It might be like, here's John with the red beard, here's Henry from the big hill, here's Ed, John's son, etc., etc. I imagine this was really helpful because even if you had like 300 people in your village, you might have like 20 Alefreds or something. <laughs> Who knows? In imposing permanent hereditary surnames, some Norman names were added to the mix, like Percy, Warren, Tuberville, and other Frenchy-sounding names. And this is one of the starting points of when French really starts to infiltrate English, and we get sort of the melange that we have today. <laughs> There's a French word, melange. But for the most part, the existing descriptors already in use by the Anglo-Saxons were the names that people adopted for their permanent use as surnames. The switch to ancestral surnames was easier for those of wealthier classes to adjust to, as it helped ensure that their land holdings would remain in the family through generations. That being said, one might still colloquially be referred to by a descriptor rather than a surname. You know, like, think about, like, William the Conqueror, Edward the Confessor. This would continue for kings even when they had dynastic names, but that was just still something of a convention that took a really long time to die out. The research indicates that the desire to retain wealth with ancestral surnames was especially true for the Highland lords of Ireland and Scotland when the Normans eventually made their way to those territories. And it's interesting, just with the Norman conquests of the British Isles, we think of it, I, I, I tended to think of it as just, you know, okay, Battle of Hastings, 1066. But there were several waves of conquests, battles, overthrows that took place at different intervals throughout the British Isles. One article I found pointed out that Ireland and Scotland were experiencing a flowering of ancestral names by the time of the Norman Conquest, possibly because large clans wanted to protect ownership of their assets. This seems like it was a spontaneous event on the part of the Scotch-Irish that just kind of happened to coincide with the influence of the Normans. And we'll go into the Scotch-Irish again in a little bit because there's some really interesting stuff there. It was more difficult for the Normans to impose hereditary surnames on the lower classes, who had no land or assets to protect. However, the classification of peoples, particularly this class, was essential to the Normans for taxation and conscription purposes. The imposition of surnames on the lower classes was so difficult, the effort lasted through the next couple hundred years. If we fast-forward to the 14th century, we arrive at another influential naming period in Britain, the Black Death, the Bubonic Plague, the Big Uzi. At this point in history, Smith was a big fish in a big pond of British surnames, 
Like, if you think of all of the surnames that were sort of circulating around Britain, it's just this huge pool of names, and Smith is just one amongst them. The pond of surnames would change with the arrival of the Black Death in 1348. Researchers believe that the breadth of surnames in the British Isles was way more diverse before the Black Death killed between a third to half of the population. It's thought that thousands of single-family surnames were lost to history as entire families were wiped out. We can see that this would eliminate a big portion of the family names from this huge naming pond, so then Smith becomes a much bigger fish because that pond of names shrinks, and Smith is still more common because this, in parts of the countryside and things like that, professional by-names are still really very much in use, and Smith, again, is a very common profession. So Smith, with this mass die-off, Smith becomes a bigger fish in this shrinking pond of family names. Records of the surnames of common people prior to around the 1400s are really hard to come by. This is partly because the use of hereditary surnames weren't universal in the British Isles until around that time, around the 1400s. Although I will point out that Wales still hadn't had hereditary surnames yet, but that's because they are weird. W is not a vowel, Wales. Sorry to blow your mind. Anyway. On October 25, 1415, King Henry V fought and won the Battle of Agincourt. This was a decisive victory for England in the Hundred Years' War against France, a Cinderella upset of the English longbowmen against the larger and better-equipped French army. Luckily for us, we can see the names of people who fought in this battle thanks to the Agincourt 600 project. This is an online effort where a group of historians have compiled the available muster lists and digitized them in honor of the Battle of Agincourt's 600th anniversary. The lists are definitely not complete, but scrolling through what was available, I found a not insignificant number of smiths in the roles of the English army specifically, particularly among the archers. And if nothing else, it definitely seemed like Smith and its variants, like Smythe, Smeath, were more frequently mentioned than other names. Although not as much as I expected. I expected it to be rife with Smiths at this point, but it was still well represented. And just a quick note on the evolving pronunciation of Smith. Scholars believe that the Smiths of medieval England were probably called Smeath, taking after the French vowel sounds of the Normans. There's also the possibility that the change to Smith with that short I, as it is known today, is the result of the different changes brought about by the great vowel shift of the mid to late Middle Ages. And I wasn't able to find any concrete proof of this, but if nothing else, looking at the great vowel shift, we could see why we have these different variants of Smith. So we have Smith, Smythe, things like that. We just don't have Smoth. You could argue that for a name to gain long-term traction, it needs to be associated with the nobility. Wealthier people have more resources, better access to doctors, more societal influence, and are just in a better position to have lasting family lines. I don't think that is blowing anybody's minds here. Historian Compton Reed delves into the earliest noble Smith family lines in his 1904 book, The Smith Family being a popular account of most branches of the name, however spelt, from the 14th century downwards, with numerous pedigrees now published for the first time. 
I don't know what that reads like, but it doesn't read like a book title. <laughs> Reed traces the earliest Smith nobles to a document dating from 1433. He writes, quote, Taking, as our starting point, the commissioner's return of 1433, we find the name Smith, or Smythe, occupying a place among gentry. Even at that remote date, it was not wholly bourgeois, but rooted in the land. It is, of course, Saxon, and its bearers, with numerous others of Saxon origin, had slowly but surely broken through the monopoly of the soil enjoyed from the conquest by the Norman barons. End quote. Reed goes on to present incredibly Byzantine trees of all the Smith families he could find, and I won't do that to you here because I like you and I want to keep us on track. But Reed does mention that some Smith lines come from families changing their names to Smith during the War of the Roses for, quote, purposes of concealment, end quote. Concealment from what or from whom is not mentioned, and I really was having a hard time finding anything in my research as to why that would be. A trend with these complex pedigrees of Reed's analysis point to an upward social mobility, which is interesting. Most of these families began as tradesmen or farmers, and then they rose to distinction through subsequent generations. One of the earliest Smiths to be a member of Parliament was Richard Smith I, who started out life as a clothier in reading. He was a member of a merchant's guild in London when he was confirmed in the offices of King Henry VIII. Smith served as a yeoman at the king's coronation, which I guess means that he wore kind of like a beefeater uniform and was just part of the procession, that kind of thing. And he enjoyed a lot of other positions, including the customer of Calais. One could say he was a cool customer, which actually he was not. He got into a lot of fights with people over liturgical issues of all things. The Smith story takes some interesting turns in Ireland in the 1600s. See, I told you we would go back to the Scotch-Irish. Some records cited by Reed seem to suggest that many Roman Catholic Smiths were granted nobility under the reign of Charles I, and then they fled to Ireland amidst Protestant dominance in England. Here they were met with another sociopolitical group in Ireland called the Old English that were descended from the medieval Normans. Hmm. There were also groups of Protestants who were granted land holdings that were seized from Irish Catholic nobles, and a lot of these were probably named Smith. During the years of Cromwell's overthrow of Ireland around the 1640s and 1650s, Irish names were anglicized as part of Cromwell's suppression of Irish culture. The Irish people, particularly the Irish Catholics, were under tremendous pressure from the Protestant Cromwell to abandon their Gaelic culture. I'm sure the massacres of the Irish Catholics during a rebellion they launched against Cromwell in 1647 was a huge influence on the urgency to anglicize. Some Irish names were phonetically translated to Smith, like the Irish name Smeath, while others were semantically translated, in that the meaning of the word was traded for its English equivalent. The name Macaben, spelled M-A-C-G-A-B-H-A-N, for instance, which meant son of the Gabhan, which Gabhan means smith, like a professional smith, was then anglicized to smith because that was its English equivalent. And the smith profession was as common in Ireland as it was in the rest of Britain, so we can imagine how common this name would become. And interesting, just kind of a side note, Magabhan is the same root name that the surname McGowan comes from. 
and McGowan is just a phonetic anglicization, meaning that it was changed to sound like something in English. Let's wrap up where we are in British history. At this point, we are just on the cusp of the age of exploration. We can almost taste it. And that will take us to the colonization of America. At this point in history, Smith has grown in popularity and prestige in the British Isles. People with a Smith surname are predominantly in the working classes and merchant classes, but the name can be found in all echelons of society at this point. So yeah, there we will leave the Smith story, and I'm very excited to dive into the next part because we will go into all kinds of stuff like racism and cultural suppression, all those things that are part of our history as Americans. But you know what? We will learn from it. Thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Megan, and this has been Moniker, the histories and mysteries of names. If you like this podcast, please subscribe and leave a nice review. Tell your friends. And if you have a name that you want me to talk about, please email me at monikerpod at gmail.com. I will see you all next time where we dive into American Smiths. Farewell!